about Fly Fishing Internet Radio, your source for learning more about fly fishing in cold water, warm water, and salt water. Hello, I'm Roger Maves, your host for tonight's show. On this broadcast, we'll be featuring Jim Stenson, and he'll be answering your questions on South Florida's fishing paradise. This show will be 90 minutes in length, and we're broadcasting live over the Internet. If you'd like to ask Jim a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and use the Q&A text box to send us your question. We'll receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. And while you're there, to make sure to sign up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. Just fill out the form on the right side of our homepage, and we'll let you know when the next live show will be. This broadcast is being recorded and will be available for playback on our website about 48 hours after the show wins. You can also find it on any of the podcast sites like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. So if you have to leave early, you can return to our website or any of the podcast platforms at your convenience and listen to the recording at any time. If you're out and about on Facebook, Instagram, or X, we'd sure appreciate it if you'd share our podcast. And when you do, use hashtag AskAboutFlyFishing and hashtag FlyFishing. In fact, if you have a moment, do it right now while you're listening to the show. We'd love it if you'd share what was going on with our show tonight. The content of this broadcast is copyrighted. It's the property of the Knowledge Group Inc. Doing businesses ask about fly fishing. When we return, we'll be talking with Jim Stenson about South Florida's fishing paradise. The Colorado River at Lee's Ferry is called by some the world's largest spring creek. It's a massive clear-running tailwater fishery that runs 15.5 miles from the base of the Glen Canyon Dam to the upper reaches of the Grand Canyon. At times, it gives the impression of being not one or two, but a series of parallel Spring Creek-like waterways. The fishing is great, and the scenery is gorgeous. Lee's Ferry Anglers provides professional guide service to this outstanding rainbow trout fishery, as well as food and lodging at Cliff Dwellers Restaurant and Lodge. See for yourself why Lee's Ferry is on every fly fisher's must-do list. Visit leesferryanglers.com or call them at 800-962-9755. That's Lee's ferryanglers.com or call them at 800-962-9755. Before we introduce Jim, we'd like to let you know about the great prizes we have to give away tonight. For our drawing tonight, we'll be giving away a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International and a one-year membership to Trout Unlimited. Now, if you haven't registered yet for the drawing, you can do so now. Just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and look for the link under Jim's section that says register for our free drawing. Click on the link, fill out the form, and we'll announce the winners at the end of the show. We'll also be giving away a copy of Jim's latest book, South Florida's Fishing Paradise, courtesy of Stackpole Books. To learn more about Stackpole Books, go to stackpolebooks.com and go exploring there. They have tons of books to look at. Now, here's how you can win. You must be the first person to answer the question we ask at the end of the show. The question will be about something we talked about during the show, and you must submit your answer along with your name and your location using the text box on our homepage. So listen closely, take lots of notes, pay attention, and maybe you'll win Jim's book, South Florida's Fishing Paradise. Our guest tonight is Jim Stenson. Jim attended Florida State University and received a bachelor's degree in information science and a master's in library science and information studies. He has written numerous articles and columns about fly fishing, surfing, and the unique culture of South Florida. He was the managing editor and publisher of the Contemporary Sportsman and the Contemporary Wing Shooter magazines. And he's the founder of Sweetwater's Adventure, an international adventure travel company catering to fly fishermen and wing shooters 
as well. He also owns Integrated Digital Publishing, an outdoor marketing company specializing in graphic design, photography, web design, and video development. Jim, welcome to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio Podcast. Oh, thank you. Good. I can hear you. <laughs> Good. I was curious. I was waiting for you to say Jim. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, folks, to fill you in, just we had to scramble at the beginning because we were connected on the call, and then I couldn't hear Jim, and I had to call back in. And, and so, uh, yeah, we were both kind of uh, waited with baiting, baited breath there to see if I could hear him. But uh, good, good. Oh, we're off to a, a roaring start then. So, well, Jim, you just came out with this book from Stackpole, South Florida's Fishing Paradise, Early Adventures from Lake Worth to Florida Bay to Boca Grande and back. What inspired you to write your book? Well, it was almost an environmental piece in the beginning. I, I was born in, believe it or not, Phoenix City, Alabama. My dad was an engineer at Redstone Arsenal in Huntsville, and we eventually transferred down to Florida and we at Cape Canaveral, and we lived on Cocoa Beach. And when I was a kid, South Florida was incredible. I mean, it was actually there was a time when there was green space between Pompano Beach and Palm Beach, and Palm Beach into Jacksonville almost. Then there was green space between Fort Lauderdale South around Dania down to Miami. I mean, there just wasn't the crowds. When I was a kid, going back to when probably 1969, 1968, that Florida only was the seventh largest state in the country. Now Florida is the number one most populated state in the country. And it's just looking back at what was and what will never be again. And it just sort of thought that People need to know, like I said, what was, but what will never be again today because it's just no possible way to replicate what's happening in the 60s and 70s. And it just, I knew this story like in the back of my hand. And actually, it started when COVID came through. I didn't have anything else to do because nobody was traveling. So I decided to write South Florida's Fishing Paradise. Actually, the original title was Where the Sweet Meets the Brine, but evidently Stackpole didn't like it, so they changed it to South Florida's Fishing Paradise. <laughs> I didn't have anything to say about that, but that's okay. Oh. It ended up being a good title. Yeah. But, you know, there's just, when I think about it, when I think about how good it was when I was a kid, and, and I still go down. I, I live in Mobile, Alabama now. My wife's a chemistry professor here at the University of South Alabama. And I still go back to Florida five, six, seven, eight times a year. Actually, I go down to Sanibel probably six or seven times a year in the summer and fish for snook and tarpon on the beaches. But when I was a kid, the west coast of Florida, I mean, Naples was nothing but a little little dot on the wall. There was a few people lived there. There was a Naples Pier. There was some houses on the beach. And it was nothing. Then you had green space between Naples and Fort Myers. And then Fort Myers, you know, Venice. And there's a lot of green space between Venice and Sarasota. Yeah. And then north up to essentially Tampa Bay. And there were so many rivers and so many estuaries and so many fish at the time that you just didn't think it would ever go away. But then things happened. And... It, you know, yeah. things disappear, and then you start to go, well, what's wrong with this? Then you start to look into everything that's driving the environment, and then you start to go, wow, is there any possible way to turn this around? So anyway, that's originally why I wrote South Florida's Fishing Paradise, yeah. because the extremes between one end and the other was just ridiculous. Well, it's kind of been that, I hate to say it, Jim, but it's been that way all over. You know, I'm in Colorado, and when I was growing up here as a kid, I moved here from Alaska, and they used to say, oh, well, someday 
between Boulder and Denver, it'll be nothing but houses. And someday between um, Cheyenne, Wyoming and Pueblo, Colorado, it'll be nothing but houses. And those were just fields back then, too, like you said, green spaces. Well, guess what? It's just about there. <laughs> it's just about there. So um, and not not well, Florida's and, not. I'm sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Florida has never had a governor, but it wasn't a pro-growth and development governor. It didn't matter if they were liberal or conservative. They wanted people to move into Florida. They wanted businesses to move into Florida. Then the developers came in, and it just went crazy for like 15 yeah. or 20 years. Florida just exploded. And like I said, right. Florida's now, because of all the problems going on in the United States, people are migrating to Florida. And now the population growth is like 26, 27,000 people. And the government's telling everybody by the end of the next 10, 12 years that the population of the state of Florida will probably be somewhere around 33, 34, 35, then 36, 37, then 38, 39. It's just going to roll in, and we're going to yeah, end up with wow. 40,000 people. Boy, that's insane. That's going to be tough. And, yeah, it's going to be tough. Yeah. Well, you know, you've literally almost spent a lifetime of fishing in Florida. I know you moved there when you were a kid, but you were young. And just tell us about, you know, how you got started fishing in Florida, you know, from early years on. Well, I grew up fishing with my aunts and uncles and my grandfathers back in Phoenix City and Columbus, Georgia. They owned property down on Lake Eupaula. Then during the summers, I would come up and visit, and we would go down and fish Lake Eupaula for two, three, four months until school started again. But when I went back, my mother and father got divorced, and my mother married my stepfather, and that went downhill from that point on, and I was like 11 or 12 years old. And so I met a friend that was fishing the bridges in Fort Lauderdale, and he told me about the pier, Pompano Pier, Dania Pier, Anglin's Pier, Lake Worth Pier, and then we'd go south to Dania and Miami and all over, and he just kept talking about all these places, and so he actually had a car, and I didn't, obviously, because I was too young, so he took me over to Anglin's Pier, and give or take three or four months, we developed a group of kids, you know, maybe 25, 30, 35 kids at the same age whose parents were divorced and they really didn't care what happened to the kid. Uh, my parents used to tell me, you can do anything you want to as long as you don't show up at the door with a cop. And <laughs> so I, I essentially spent my whole, from when I was like 12, to when I was 17, 18, 19 years old on the pier. And like I said, eventually we got cars and we drove and we used to fish as far north as Lake Worth Pier. Then we used to go out and fish Sebastian Inlet. Then we would go down south and we'd fish Oliver Inlet and all these places in Miami. And then we worked our way down to the Florida Keys. But it was, the fishing was so good then. It was just insane. The bridges were stacked with snook. Holliver Inlet and Fort Lauderdale were loaded with 150, 170, 175 pound tarp. And then they're still there. That's one of the few places that's actually still got huge fish left. And I have a friend down there, Joe Malgio, and he's a guide. And he takes people out fishing all the time for tarpon. But the only reason they fish for tarpon is because the water's so polluted that there's nothing left. You yeah, go down to the yeah. seawall, you go down to the marina, you look over the side of the seawall, and there's no bait. It's all green. It's green slimes. But since tarpon, have, they can breathe in or out of the water. They have a lung and, a, and a, they can breathe gulf air. It doesn't affect them as much as it does the other fish. And when I was a kid, this is a true story. When I was a kid, when I was like 13, 14 years old, we used to just collect all our lunch money, and we would get in one of our friends' car. And we would drive up to Jupiter Pier. And at one time in the early 70s, mid-70s, there were 152 sailfish came over the rail at Lake Worth Pier. And there were three of the world's largest permit caught there. They were all three world records. And they were on the wall. So when you go in there, you can fish at night. 
and you could fish all day for snook, and you could just camp out in the pier for two, three, four days until it was time to go home. And nice. it, was, it was, yeah, you just can't imagine what it was like then. And I was just down in Florida, I guess about four or five months ago, I was visiting a friend down there, and we drove up to Lake Worth Pier, and three-quarters of the pier is gone, and the whole tackle shop that had all the fish on the wall and all the numbers and the plaques and everything, it completely wiped out, and it was just essentially a little table there where you had to pay your fee to get on the pier. But all the other piers south of Lake Worth had been destroyed by storms. And so the city, they didn't necessarily want the fishermen out on the piers. So what they did is they went in and they rebuilt these beautiful piers with twice the height of the, the old piers. And they essentially built for tourists where they could go out at night when the sun was going down and all this other stuff. And they could make more money off the tourists than they could off fishing. So essentially Lake Worth, Dania, Anglin's Pier, Anglin Pier is the same way. Anglin's Pier actually got destroyed about three years ago, and it's still only half built because they spend the money on other projects on the pier. But it was the migration north and south. First, if you had two migrations, you had the mullet run. They would go north in the spring, and they would come back in the in fall. And they would come down the shoreline about the thousands and thousands and thousands, tens of thousands a mullet would migrate south, and every fish in the world from carpet and snook to big jacks to sharks to black tips, it just it didn't matter. They were all there to feed on the mullet, and so they would follow the mullet all the way down. And if you look at a map, Lake Worth sort of comes out on a point, and then it goes back west. But that point is where the reef, the Gulf Stream, comes down, and as it swings past that point, it comes closer to the shoreline than any other pier in America. And so... That's where the sailfish and the permit came from because the reefs were essentially maybe 150, 200 yards off the end of the pier. So you'd go to the pier at night and you would load up on dwarf jacks, goggle eyes, pilchards, thread fin, any kind of live bait you could find. We'd, we'd spend all night catching bait when the sun come up. We'd just hook them in the butt on a rod and pitch them out off the end of the pier and they'd swim out to the reef and the cobia, the kingfish, the, the sailfish, they would all come in and feed on this stuff. But the permit was a totally different story because permits tend to feed mostly on crabs and crustaceans. They would run to beaches at night, and you could actually see them coming down the beach. And these guys would come out at night, and they'd drag out a half a dozen kids, and these kids would catch crabs all night. They wouldn't find enough crabs. And then you had an incoming tide. These kids would go out there and they'd catch crabs to these permits. And it, it was insane. And the same yeah, it just it was. Yeah, it was one of the you don't hear about that today. Catching permit on the no. beach on the east coast of uh, Florida. Yeah, yeah. No. Wow, that's it's, it's completely. Those gone. were the days, huh? Well, when you yeah. stop and think about it, I mean, there are even today, and I know there's not a lot of negative to be said about what's going on down in Florida, but but even today, there's tons of fishing opportunities in Florida. I mean, I start thinking about it. Um, you know, and back in those days, there was even more. But, you know, and you just rattled off a bunch of things. But what was available back then and, you know, what's available now for folks to pursue down there in the way of fish? Well, I think the biggest problem is it's been access, but it's also been pollution. If you mm -hmm. look at, I know this is going to get kind of deep, but if you're talking about quality, quality of water and you need good quality water in order to catch fish, because there's no more bait left. The bait's moved offshore or just bypasses the South Florida and goes someplace else. But the problem is it starts in Lake Okeechobee and it starts at the sugarcane industry, the phosphate industry, the sugar industry, and it's the, uh, what do you call it? The, uh, oh, God, 
uh, cattle industry. Jesus Christ, I can't believe I couldn't remember that. But essentially, all these things are covered in pesticides, fertilizers, herbicides, insecticides, and they pump all that water, that dirty water, into Okeechobee. And on the east coast, you've got the St. Lucie River, and on the west coast, you've got Caloosahatchee River. And so essentially what they do is once the algae builds up in Lake Okeechobee, they open the dams and dikes, and all that water flows out to the ocean. And on the east coast, they don't really have the grass flats and stuff that we have on the west coast, but on the west coast, that water flows directly into Charlotte Harbor, Boca Grande. I mean, it's just at one time it was the most wonderful estuaries in the world. I mean, that's why the first book is called Where the Sweet Meets the Brine. It was where all these, the Mayaka, the Peace, and the Clusahatchee all dumped into Charlotte Harbor, and then you got Boca Grand, and then you got the South End of Sanibel, where all this stuff just mixed. And you had tons and tons of mangroves, and you, you had grass flats everywhere, and mud flats, and you had just layers of moisture bars. You had tons and tons of scallops. People could die for scallops. Now you go down there, just about everything is gone. There's no more grass. It's just mud. Most of the mangroves have died off or taken out for homes and development. And the problem with all that is, is not only does the pollution destroy everything, there's normally a red tide at the same time of the year off the West Coast or on the East Coast. And when this stuff hits Charlotte Harbor, it gets flushed out into the, the Gulf Stream. And then everything explodes and the dinoflagellates and red tide stuff explode. And when it's mixed with algae, it's just it's super soup. And it just kills everything. And so then you've got to and sometimes try to figure out, well, how, how do we stop this? we got to stop the flow of the water. Because Caloosahatchee and the St. Lucie are man-made rivers. They built these rivers so people could cross the state of Florida in their boats so they didn't have to go all the way around the Keys and come back up. But the problem is when the water builds up and pollution builds up, they have nowhere to go but to dump it in estuaries. And then they tell you, well, there's nothing we can do about it. The Santos, the, new, the governor in the state of Florida, is just like any other governor. He, when he ran to get reelected, he said that the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to solve the water issues. And everybody just, you know, threw up their hands, clapped, yada, yada, yada. As soon as he was elected, he, then he turned around and told everybody, but he doesn't have access to it. This all falls under the purview of the Army Corps of Engineers mm-hmm. and the South Florida Water District. I mean, it, it's just so corrupt, and the problems never get fixed. And they just pass it on to the next governor, the next governor, the state legislator, and all this. And people talk a good story, but in the end, it just keeps going. And that's why you have this coalition of all these guides down there, clean water guides. And they've got these groups going, and they're trying to raise money to solve all this stuff. But in order to solve this stuff, you've got to get rid of the sugar industry. You've got to get rid of the citrus industry. You've got to get rid of a lot of the cattle industry. You've got to take the dams and dikes out of the not only the Calusa River, but you've got to take the dams and dikes out of the rivers flowing into the top of Okeechobee. Then you've got to take all the dams out of the bottom of it so the water can flow and the water gets back to the Everglades. At one time, South Florida had seven and a half million acres of Everglades. Now we're down to less than a million acres of Everglades. And everything wow. that comes down, down current flows into the Everglades and the Everglades Everglades are a mess. That's, that's another topic altogether with the yeah with yeah the, yeah with the snakes and the dragons and it just <laughs> it's enough to scare somebody. But it's well, um, yeah. Let's. Uh, I need to stop you there for a second and uh, take a quick break. But when we come back, sure. um, yeah, I want to kind of revisit some of the old days down there and talk about the fishing, how it was, and we can come back again talk about how it is and compares. But hang tight for just thirty seconds. I'll be sure. right back and we'll continue on. 
The Ugly Bug Fly Shop in Casper, Wyoming, has been serving fly fishers in Wyoming and around the world since 1983. Their selection of top-of-the-line gear and a huge assortment of flies is one of the best in the land. All products are available in their fly shop and online. Looking for advice? Just give them a call, and their expert professional staff will help you with whatever you need. Visit the Ugly Bug Fly Shop today at UglyBugFlyShop.com or call them at 866-845-9284. That's UglyBugFlyShop.com or call them at 866-845-9284. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, and we're talking with Jim Stenson about South Florida. If you'd like to ask Jim a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and use that Q&A text box to send us your question. We'll receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. Um, Let's see. Um, Hold on just a second here. Okay. So, um, Jim, I don't know if you're walking around, moving around, but uh, if I hear a lot of noise with your phone, so if you could kind of no, do whatever to keep that place. going. Oh, okay, I'm okay, <laughs> okay. I'm hearing a lot of crackling and stuff. So anyway, it's okay. The connection. Yeah. Um, so um, you know, in your book, you talk about Dick Clevenger, and how did he shape your fishing? Well, when I was growing up in Fort Lauderdale, I I love Fort Lauderdale. Fort Lauderdale. I lived in essentially camped on the pier with all the kids, and we would catch fish at night. Then we'd sell all the fish, and we to the restaurants up and down A one A right there where Fort where Lauderdale by the sea T bones into the pier, and I was just one of the happiest kids on the planet. I didn't care if I I never left. But then, out of the blue, my dad, my stepfather, and my mother decided to move over to Sarasota and buy a restaurant. And I was just, I was terrified. I didn't want to go. I, I did everything in the world to find it. I had friends that were guides in Fort Lauderdale. I said, why don't you just stay with us? And, you know, because I really didn't have a really good relationship with my parents anyway at that time, my stepfather and my mother. And uh, one thing led to another, and... I had to go. I had to go over to Sarasota. And so we went across the alley and then we went up and we found a place to live on Siesta Key. And my dad bought a restaurant there. And I was just depressed. I was just absolutely depressed. But then I started venturing out on my bicycle because when you're a kid, if you're 12, 13, 14 years old, you don't have any driver's license. You're either walking or you're on a bicycle. And so one thing led to another and I started fishing Siesta Key Beach, which was phenomenal. Longboat Key, Longboat Pass, Midnight Pass going all the way down to Captiva and Sanibel. It was just unbelievable the fishing was because it wasn't developed yet. And the water was still crystal crystal clean and it was no pollution. And so I started riding my bike up to a place called Siesta Key Bridge. <laughs> and essentially there was a seawall that went around the bridge. So I pull over my bicycle, drop down my light off the front of my, off the seawall. And then I'd sit there and dip shrimp until I had two or three dozen of hand-picked shrimp. And then I would go up to the bridge and I'd wait for an incoming tide. But the first time I went up there, there was three big guys, a guy named Dick Clevenger, another guy named Pat Wally, and the other guy, his name was Lou, and they were standing side by side by side. I had about 10 or 12 rods. I had two bait buckets. I had, I was just, had, I always carried tons of gear, as much as I could put in my bicycle. And I got up there, and they looked at me, and they go, who the hell do you think you are, some kind of half-ass astronaut? I said, I don't know. And these guys were older. I mean, they were all in their 30s, 40s, and Dick was in his 50s. And I'm going, Jesus Christ, what the hell happened here? You know, I just wanted to go back to Fort Lauderdale. And one thing led to another, and 
you know, we got to know each other. Been after a couple nights, I started. They started taking me up to a place called Hart's Landing, where they used to get shrimp and net bait before they went fishing. Then they would go get in their trucks and they would drive south, sometimes as far as, as Naples. And uh, over the next six, seven months, Dick just developed a great relationship with my parents. And instead of me riding a bicycle all the time, he would come over and. 5 36 o'clock on Friday afternoon, and then we'd go down to Hart's Landing and have a, I think they would have a few beers, we'd eat a fruit fries, and try to decide where we we're going to fish that night, depending on the tide. Because the West Coast is a lot different than the East Coast. The East Coast has got four consistent tides. On the West Coast, it's not consistent. I mean, you can have two tide days, one tide days, three tide days, four tide days. So you really want to be able to realize where you're fishing, and if the tides aren't right, you'd have to go someplace else. But we spent a lot of time on the road going up and down the west coast of Florida, I mean, down to Boca Grande, Venice, the, all the bridges in Venice. And it just, these were great guys, even though they probably scared the hell out of how to be if you ever met them. Because Dick used to build pool cages, and he had a black hat. He always wore a black cowboy hat, but he had red suspenders on, and he had... His belt was pulled up to his waist, and he had always carried a Bowie knife on the side of his <laughs> pants. And he was sort of a scary character when you first met him, but he ended up being one of my closest friends of all time. But he passed a few years ago with cancer. But uh, he was he was so good to me. I mean, it, it was it's it's like that they knew that I needed to meet somebody, and somebody mm-hmm. that knew what they were doing, and somebody who would take me fishing when I wanted to go fishing. But to be honest, the Siesta Key to fishing was so damn good. Midnight Pass, Longboat Key, I mean, all these all these passes, they were just full of stuff and stuff. All the bridges, mm-hmm. I mean, the Midnight Pass, uh, even uh, the, the new Siesta Key Bridge and the Stickney Point Bridge, when you would go down, it would be another island, another bridge, another island, another bridge, going all the way down to, to the end of Sanibel. And actually, the guy, the bridge tender in Sanibel, not on Sanibel, but the bridge tender on the bridge, south of Sanibel, caught the world record snook at one time. He was 47, I think it was 47, six, 47 pounds and six ounces or something like that. But he caught it on a white chicken pepper with a yellow worm on the back of it, fishing in, in a dead tide for the draw. And uh, it's just hard for me to explain to people how many snook and tarpon, ladyfish and redfish and trout there were on the West Coast. It's like I got there to, at a time where it was, everything was open. I mean, there just wasn't a lot of fish being taken, but there were a ton of people fishing. But yeah, it's just, these guys, they essentially raised me for the next three or four years. I mean, they would pick me up, they would take me out, feed me, take me to the hamburger donut place, or, you know, we'd go down into the pancake house and we'd eat in the middle of the night, then we'd go to another pier and another bridge. And, you know, we'd go up and down the West Coast on a weekend. And that was one of the coolest things in the world. But the best part about it is we were to fish. And it was just so amazing how many more fish were on the West Coast than it was on the East Coast. The problem is on the East so Coast, was, the fish were huge. Hmm? So, yeah, I was going to ask you the difference between the East Coast and West Coast. What did you find the, the major differences were in fishing? We got so many estuaries on the West Coast. And most okay. of the snow, there were so many rivers that came out and, and went into these estuaries, starting at Tampa Bay all the way down to the Everglades. There were dozens of them. I mean, in the book, I list all the estuaries and rivers that dumped into Charlotte Harbor. And the ones that dumped in, the ones on Midnight Pass, and then you had Blind Pass. And these passes were so full of fish. And they would move out. They would move out to the estuaries. Then they would sit there until the winter came around or until fall came around and water temperature dropped. And they would move back up into rivers. And then it's like Bradenton. There was this place called, uh, it's a little city north of uh, Sarasota. And... 
They actually had two bridges that go over there. They really no name. Everybody called it the Green Bridge, but I don't think that was the real name. But it was a really low bridge that went across the river. And what happened is when the water temperature would drop, all these fish would move in and move up these rivers. But there were times that you could catch four, five, six, seven, snook in 15, 20-pound range a night apiece. I mean, obviously, you couldn't keep that many. We'd catch them and put them in a net and then release them again. But the fishing was just incredible. And, you know, the older I got, the more I thought about it. And I'm going, you know, maybe this move worked out pretty well. But one thing led to another, and I turned 17, and I got my real father had bought me a, a Suburban. And so I jumped in the Suburban, and then I went out to Portland, Oregon for three years. <laughs> okay. I, I wanted to catch steelhead. I've been reading everything about steelhead for years. Uh-huh. And uh, I was fly fishing by then. Essentially, I was just about fly fishing all the time. But I wanted to go out to well, Oregon and catch steelhead. Yeah. When did you you started fly fishing in Florida, right? Did you were yeah. you fly fishing on the East Coast or what, did that yeah, start on the West Coast? I, I ran into a bunch of kids on the pier that were older than I was. One of them, is Steve Cantner, he's probably one of the most famous fly fishermen in South Florida. Yeah, I've I've interviewed fly. Steve. Yeah, I've interviewed yeah. Steve. Yeah. And Steve sort of adopted me and. Uh, we went everywhere, and he taught me how to fly fish and rig my rods. And eventually, I ran into some other friends, really close friends, that their father was a guide. And then we ended up fishing the whole water canal and the intercoastal up and down the East Coast. And uh, I mean, it was phenomenal. I mean, it's hard for me to sit here and describe how good the fishing was because most people would never believe me. But when yeah, you're looking yeah. nowadays, I mean, people go out there and they they can't get out on the pier. And if they do get out on the pier, they can't really fish the pier. And, and the, yep. the reefs are sort of gone and polluted and broken down. So you don't really get the fish that comes back across the, the reef and comes in shore. But occasionally you do still get some good runs and things like pompano and mackerel, but not yep. very many. I so, mean, in order so to, did in your, order did to your, the fish, you got to have to bait. But did your friends teach you how to fish then? How to cast? How to tie flies? Happened. I, there was a guy. He was he was an editor. Uh, his name was Marlon Tate. He was an editor for the Miami Herald newspaper, and he lived actually up in uh, Dania. He didn't actually live in Miami. Somehow, I can't remember where I met him, but he invited me over to his house because every Thursday night I had a fly tying club there, and I didn't have a fly rod. I had no idea how to tie flies, and so I got there and there was like ten or twelve older gentlemen sitting at this table in his garage. And, he comes out and he hands me this fly rod. It's just a piece of junk. And he handed a fly reel on it. And it had, didn't have any backing. It had some fly line on it. And he um, was trying to teach me how to tie flies. And in the book, I talk about how bad my first two or three flies were. And the fly rod was in such bad shape that we were camping out in the Everglades three or four nights later. And I just broke it into about 10 pieces and threw it in the fire. It was so bad. It was just absolutely. But the only reason I was able to get that fly rod in the first place and these flies and these and the fly tank material and the bobbins and the vices and all this stuff, because they belonged to a guy who just died. He was part of the club meeting. So he just gave all this stuff to me in a box and sent me home with it. And uh, it, that didn't last very long. And we started getting fly shops in Fort Lauderdale, which was sort of strange. I mean, most of the fishing in Fort Lauderdale, for the most part, was done with conventional gear, a lot of offshore bill fish reels and things like that. But I walked into a, uh, I think it was Montgomery Wards, and I walked into the fishing department, and there was a Ted Williams fly rod and a, and a fly reel there. And so I think it was like, I think they were asking like 45 maybe $49 for it. So I went back to the pier, and I sold a pen 710 on a eight foot Harnell to a, one of the kids on the pier. But I took the money and I went back and I bought the fly rod and the fly reel. 
Well, I still didn't have any backing. I didn't didn't know how to put the fly light on. I didn't I didn't know how to do anything. So I had two friends that their father was a guide, and I called them up and they met me at the pier. They brought me like 40, 50 flies, saltwater and freshwater flies. They brought me some backing, put a line on it, and tried to show me how to tie a tippet. And then for the next three, four months, we would meet after football practice or baseball practice on the football field and teach me how to cast. And eventually they showed me how to double haul and things just sort of went went right. Then they took me into, father took me out into intercoastal and we went down to the hot water canal in Fort Lauderdale. And first fish I caught on a fly was a 28-pound snook. So, oh, wow. Yeah, it was just got to run into the right people at the right time in your life. And uh, <laughs> yeah. we became. <laughs> That's a good start. <laughs> 28 yeah, we became snook. friends for life. Actually, yeah. the first two fish I caught on a fly rod was was a snook, and then I caught like a 36, 37-pound tarpon that night and it, uh, in the intercoastal, right at where the bridges are, where the lights shine down in the water. At night, when the tide starts to go out, all the bait fish roll in, they sit under the light, but these tarpon come up and hit them. But they're, they're just suckers for flies. And so one thing just sort of led to another, and it got to the point where I was fly fishing more than I was with conventional gear. But it's, you know, these things, it just... You never plan on anything. You just, you just, you know, you go out there and you do this, you do that, and all of a sudden it just starts to work. And then you run into the right people. And Steve Cantner essentially adopted me. And uh, one thing led to another until we, until I had to move over to the West Coast. But even then, Steve would come over all the time and work for Sanibel. And uh, the two kids and their Tom and Larry, they would come over and sometimes they'd bring their dad in a flat foot over and we'd fish poker granite during tarpon season. And it just, it's just things seem to work out if you really want to do something. Now, if you don't yeah, want to do something yeah. and you don't want to, and you're making all these excuses, then that's another story altogether. But I, I could, at the time, I could care less about school. <laughs> the only time I went to school was during baseball and football season. And, uh, <laughs> but, you know, so did you find, those... yeah, did you find the, uh, the West Coast then a more interesting place to fish as you learned more about it? It was great, but the East Coast is where all my friends lived, so I was always always missed the East Coast. And I was always once I was old enough to get a driver's license, I was always going back to the East Coast. But I mean, the problem is you, you get out to the pier, and you, you're part of a 25 or 30 kids on the pier, and then they range anywhere from like 12 to 13 years old to 17, 18, 19 years old. And this was in and about time of Vietnam, and so we had some older kids who were like 19, 20, 21. 22 years old were getting drafted they were going to Vietnam and some of them came back and the ones that came back didn't wasn't necessarily the same people they left I mean they were just you know it was a different world and some of the kids they moved north and they went up to Lake Worth some went to Sebastian Inlet and other kids went south to Miami Hollower Inlet to New River then worked their way down and ended up being guides in the Florida Keys um, so it's just I just don't think that time could happen again I wish it would yeah, I mean, yeah, I, yeah I, I dream about it all the time. That was just a cool place to live. It was just Fort Lauderdale. Every spring we had spring break, and all these girls would come from all over the country and pile on the beaches, and you know we'd be out on the piers fishing at night, and hell, half the half the women on the beach were naked and they were sleeping, and because there was no place to stay anymore. And eventually, years later, uh, Broward County and Fort Lauderdale ran them out of Fort Lauderdale. And they regretted that for the rest of their life. And now these kids go all over the world, and they're not going to go back to Fort Lauderdale. Sometimes you can't even tell them March and April if it's spring break. But there were times when I was growing up in Fort Lauderdale, the 
beaches from Dania to Jupiter were all open. There was no there were no buildings. It was all open beach, and you had parking lots. But now that whole beach from Palm Beach down to Miami is solid development. You, there's no place to park. Right. There's no. Yeah. I mean, it's just changed so much. Yeah. But that's yeah. growth and development. I mean, I, yeah, yeah. I hate that word. But <laughs> yeah, I know, I know, and uh, we all have those stories about how it was. When you, you know, you're our age, it was quite different 50 years ago, you know, more. So listen, we've got to take a quick break here again. And uh, when we come okay. back, I want to ask you about Frank the Net. So uh, <laughs> get ready to talk about Frank the Net. Enrico Puglisi flies pride themselves with creating unique and one-of-a-kind flies and fly tying material. Enrico has been experimenting with durable synthetic and natural materials to create flies that catch fish for more than 20 years. His innovative products, including brushes, fibers, and components, have made a major impact on the direction of saltwater fly fishing, and his methods and materials are respected worldwide. Whether you want your flies hand-tied for you or you'd like to tie tie your own, be sure to visit Enrico Puglisi Flies and browse through their online catalog. Visit epflies.com and do a little shopping today. Again, that's epflies.com. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, and we're talking with Jim Stenson about South Florida's fishing paradise. Uh, if you'd like to ask Jim a question, just go to our homepage, askaboutflyfishing.com, and uh, fill out that Q&A text box and send us your question. Okay, let me just uh, do a little checking in here. And uh, all right. So, um, yeah. You wrote in your book about Frank the Net. It's like, you know, you never know who you're going to meet when you're fishing. And uh, and one day you may met Frank the Net. So tell us about your first encounter and, you know, take it from there. Well, we used to go on, usually on the weekends. I had friends that worked at Economy Tackling, some of the urban tackle shops in Sarasota. But we would go down to Old Gasparilla Pass and Big Gasparilla Pass and on the incoming tide in the mornings and jig for Pompano. And, I mean, we've been doing that for a while. But one day, it was a Saturday morning. We were standing there drinking from Pompano. And this international harvester looked like it came out of the 30s or 40s, but it was essentially a flatbed international harvester with live tanks on the back. And then there was, like, buckets all around the back end of it. Then there was cast nets everywhere. And a guy gets out of the car, the truck. He's about six foot four, six foot five, would have got the size of a, I don't know, a donkey. And then he has these culottes on that go down to his knees, and he's got all culottes. these tennis, yeah, all <laughs> I these haven't heard that shoes. word in a long time. <laughs> <laughs> all these tennis shoes just li- lined up on the truck. And come to find out, he comes over the bridge. His gears are grinding. It sounds like it needs a new clutch. And he comes over the top, and he slides down the other side of parks and gets out and walks up on the bridge like he's really mad at us. And uh, he just stood there on the other side of the bridge and looked at us and looked at us and watched us for, I got, I don't know, 30, 40, 45 minutes. And it was getting a little paranoid. And so finally, uh, Ray, Ray Moss, this guy I was fishing with, hooks up on something that we never got a good look at. He, he's jigging his pompano jig, and I think he hit a big ray, but the ray took off. And it spooled him. Then when the spool took off, it broke the rod, and the spool came off the spinning room. And he was just standing there looking at it, and he said, God, nothing like that's ever happened in my life. And so I said, well, it's probably a big stingray. He goes, no, no, it had to be a cobia. And we get in this debate about what fish it was. I think it was a big ray, about a 30-pound stingray. But uh, so Frank Danette comes over, and he's looking at Ray, and Ray didn't know what to say. Ray was a little intimidated by him. And uh, he goes, uh, he goes, 
my name is Frank. And I said, well, mine's Jim, and this is Ray. And he says, yeah, I saw Ray, and <laughs> I saw Ray a minute ago. And so he just walked away from Ray and came down to me. And I was jigging and pumping on, but I caught another pumping on. I caught another pumping on. I had like three or four of them in my uh, five-gallon bucket. And uh, he says, hang on a minute. And he goes down to his truck that was still smoking. And he comes back, and he brings me the first Florida Sportsman magazine ever printed. And he was on the cover, and he was throwing a cast net. He didn't invent the cast net, but he invented the drawstrings on a cast net. You know, in the early days, you'd have to throw a cast net out, but you'd go in and have to pull everything in and pull it from the bottom. But he actually had cut a hole and put a top and a ring at the top, and he was the first guy that ever created a drawstrings. And so I'm looking. I thought that was pretty impressive because I'd, I'd never seen <laughs> uh, Florida sportsman before. But anyway, he had a big white beard. He wore an upper downer like Lefty Cray used to wear. And his truck was just, I mean, it was a mess. So one thing led to another, and he goes down to the truck, and he, he waves his arm and tells me to come with him. So I get down to the truck, and he opens up these five-gallon buckets of cash nets. And he takes two of them out. He takes a six-foot net, bait net, and a nine-foot mullet net out and puts them in another bucket. And he says, here. And I said, what do you mean? He says, go ahead. It's yours. So I'm thinking, what's, well, what's going to happen? I mean, what do you mean it's mine? He goes, no, go ahead. And kind of find out he had like 25, 30 nets on the, on the truck. What he did is he, he actually built cast nets. And actually his wife and kids built the cast nets, and they would sell them at all the tackle stores and stuff. But he came from the Florida Keys, and Steve, Steve actually knew, knew him when he was in the Keys. What he did, this is before they had drawstrings, he had this old mullet boat with a old beat-up engine on it, and he would go back into mangroves, and he would throw these cast nets over school to mullet and let the cast nets sink, and he would tie off a, like a cork, a big cork, onto the line so he knew where the net was, and then he would go back and back and back until he ran out of nets. Then he would go back and work his way back and pick up all the mullet and put them in the live well in his mullet boat. And then he would turn around and take them down to the local docks where the sport fishermen were to fish the, the bridges and the keys, and he would sell them to the captain. And it was just it was kind of a strange thing. And one thing led to another, and he just kept talking to me. And then he looked at me, and he saw Ray again over there, and Ray was having a hard time shaking a pompano. And he goes, next time you come down, don't bring that guy. <laughs> you know, I was <laughs> don't bring that up. guy. And so we developed a, just an incredible relationship. And I mean, right up until the day he passed away, we were really good friends. And his cast nets were some of the most famous cast nets on the West Coast. But uh, his family was sort of interesting. His wife, she helped make cast nets. His kids made cast nets. But the reason they moved up from the Keys in the first place was because of all the drug problems that they were having down in the Keys. They didn't want his kids to get involved. So he told me, this guy looked like he came out of a monster magazine. And then one day he tells me, he goes, you know, I went to the University of Florida. I said, did you really? He goes, yep, I have a master's degree in linguistics. And I said, what? He <laughs> said, yeah. <laughs> and I'm thinking, there ain't no way in hell. But uh, he, was, he was just... Don't judge a book by its cover, huh? <laughs> yeah, it's like, but there were all these people, because these were small towns. I mean, he lived in Port Charlotte, for Christ's sake, and there was nothing in Port Charlotte. But there was tons and tons of estuaries and tons and tons of canals. And he, this was the funniest thing in the world. He would, he sold his fish, but he caught. It was redfish, pompano, kobe, or whatever he caught. He would sell it to Hart's Landing and some of the other fish markets in Sarasota. He calls me up one day, and he says, I'm on some 8, 9, 10-pound buckle trout. 
and meet me at this bridge. I can't remember the bridge, but there's a bridge in Winfrey Port Charlotte, and I'll meet you there in the morning at 5.30. And so I actually, I said, you know, I don't have a car or a driver's license. So I called Dick up. Dick got in the car, took us down there the next morning, and he was, this, the accident of the canal came under 41 short fork, and one went up the, the south and one went north. And he would stand out in the middle of it. There was this big, deep hole, and he was pitching live shrimp and swinging it through and swinging it through. And he hooked us, kept hooking big, big trout. So I was throwing a fly under the bridge because we, we sort of had a deal with bicarbonate trout or redfish or whatever, anything other than a snook. It was his. But as long as I caught snook, because he really didn't like snook and he couldn't sell them, I could keep them. So I'm stripping this fly off between the pilings, and it could have been more, no more than a foot, foot and a half in the water. And I got this huge trout, probably, I'd go nine, nine and a half, ten pounds. And we just never saw speckled trout that big over there. I mean, that was sort of a weird thing. But we kind of find out that that tributary eventually ran out of the Maca River farther east. And in the winter, these big trout would come in and they would hold up in these deep holes. So anyway, I catch this giant speckled trout. And I take it up to the truck. And, you know, I'm sitting here looking at it. I'm putting it in an ice cooler. And he walks up and he goes, what are you doing? I said, what do you mean? He says, we have an agreement. I get to keep all the trout, the redfish, and you get to keep the snook. I said, yeah, but I've never, I've never caught a trout this big. He says, well, let me weigh it. So he weighed it and he says, I get $4.50 a pound for trout. He says, cough up the money and it's yours. <laughs> Oh, jeez. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> but oh, this is my God. I mean, that's how he lived. I mean, he, just, he made his living catching fish, and you just don't yeah. run You were catching his fish, huh? <laughs> yeah, and, well. and normally under the, you know, normally the trout of three, four pounds at best, and I just never caught one. I've, I'd caught some actually that big over in the, uh, what do you call it, on the East Coast. Oh, God, what's the name of that? Oh, jeez, I can't think of the name of it, but there's a river in Estuary on the east coast just north of lake worth that has some huge huge trout there and actually there was this program going on in the state of florida if you catch a trout over seven pounds or you catch a trout over 10 pounds or you catch a trout over 12 pounds they would give you these these buttons to put on your shirt and they were all pictures of trout and stuff and it was, it was just a big deal in order the banana river that's what i was trying to think of but that oh, up in um yeah Indian Beach in that up area, in that area. Yeah. Yep. At one time, that yeah. place was just phenomenal. Now it's just like everything else. It's it's hard to find them. But, I mean, the fishing, you, you just had so much water. And even in Boca Grande, yeah. when you went across the bridge in Boca Grande, on the left-hand side was this huge campground, and on the right-hand side of the Gasparilla Pass were open beaches and woods going all the way down to the middle of the island. There were no homes, no development. Uh, we would go out at um, Friday and Saturday night on the phosphate docks on the end of Boca Grande. There was used to be an up-and-running phosphate business in, in Boca Grande, and they have all the railroad tracks and stuff that go back to the mainland. But they had the, the sheriff of Boca Grande, his name was Gene Bow, and he lived about four houses down from the uh, phosphate docks. But the phosphate docks had fences on them and stuff and chains around them. You couldn't get in there to save your life. Phosphate docks went out about 100 and 110 yards, and it was only about four or five feet off the water, and it had lights on it and stuff. It was really kind of cool. But we had a friend that was a policeman that happened to know Gene Bow really well. So he ended up talking to Gene Bow, and one thing led to another. We went down there on a Friday night, and he went down to open up the gate, and we got out, and we, we probably pulled 20, 25, 30 rods out of the truck, tackle boxes, ice chest. And he looked at us, and he goes, what the hell are you doing? 
And I said, well, he goes, when do you want me to come back and open the lock? I said, Sunday will work. Sunday, Sunday afternoon, somewhere around 8, 8, 30 at night. <laughs> we stayed out there two and three days. And it wasn't, not only were we catching snook, we caught a, quite a few at the time. We called them Jewfish. I don't know what they call them anymore. But we caught a lot of, a lot of fish. And we'd put them on ice, and then there was a little bar around the corner called Laugh-A-Lot. And then we'd call Jimbo on the phone and tell him, we need to get for defense, we need to go over to Laugh-A-Lot and pick up more ice. And we'd spend the whole weekend out there, morning, noon, and night. It was just a phenomenal place to fish. And the phosphate docks, for the most part, are still there. The top's been taken off, and the pilings and stuff, you could actually walk out there if you could find somebody to give you, let you go out there. But the fishing is nowhere what it was when I was a kid. So that, that's the right. problem. When you're, when you're talking about these things, I'm talking about it when I was a kid. And now right. when I look at these right. places now, it's scary. I mean, the whole backside yeah. of Boca Grande Island at one time was full of grass flats. And it was just loaded with flounder. I mean, all you had to do is take a jig yeah. out there and walk the grass flats and, and bounce a rubber jig off the grass. And you can load up um, you know, a cooler with three, four, five-pound flounder in no time at all. But these days... Uh, I don't know. I just so, don't think you could do it. Well, first of all, there's no grass anymore, so that's the biggest one. Yeah. Now, Boca Grande's that's well-known for tarpon, right? Oh, yeah. It was, it was the tarpon the past there. world. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And tell us how it was back then and tell us how it is today, because people still well, the go there a lot is, today to fish, right? Yeah. The problem was back then, there were so many tournaments in the summer, and they were all kill tournaments. Which, oh. So when you got a tournament of a certain size, they would take the tarpon and put it on ice, and they would take it back and weigh it, but it just floats the thing into the water, which is really it's just it's sort of disgusting on so many levels. But as a kid, it's sort of exciting. But as Boca Grande, as Boca Grande kept getting older and older and older, obviously, a lot of the grass started disappearing, okay, just like every place else in Charlotte Harbor. And when the grass starts disappearing, then the snook starts to disappear, the ladyfish starts to disappear, and the pompano and everything else starts to disappear because there's nothing left to feed on. Well, the tarpon, they don't really go there to feed, even though they will bust baits really easily. I mean, you drop a pass crab in front of them and they'll explode on it. But they're really not there to eat. They're really there to get together, find the right pod, and go back offshore and spawn. People think they used to spawn in Boca Grande, but they don't. They spawn about 100, 110 miles offshore. And so eventually, once they get out there in the current, the current turns around and comes back, and it blows all the miniature tarpon into Charlotte Harbor. Well, the problem is there, we don't have, we've lost all the grass, and we've lost all the crustaceans. We've lost all the microorganisms that these fish used to feed on. Same thing as snook feed on. There's no more grass. There's no more microorganisms or small pinfish or, like, or grunts or anything to feed on. It's just bare. It looks like the Gobi Desert. Uh, mm. And that's really the number of fish have dropped off. But we still have huge schools of tarpon going up and down the West Coast. Actually, one time, if you go far enough up, Homosassa was a, tarpon, was a real tarpon capital of the world. That's where all the large right. tarpon, 160, 170, 180, 200, 200 pounds. That's where they right. were caught. But now the grass has gone up there. And so the fish have moved on, and they're just hard to find. But we do get what's really sort of interesting once they go around the Panhandle, clear Pensacola, we get huge schools of tarpon off the beaches of uh, Alabama. Yeah, you just got to have a way to get out there and fish them. But they're not there to fish. They're just moving. And eventually they'll go down, you know, Louisiana, then they'll go down the Texas coast, and they'll end up in Central America. And then they come back up the, pre, uh, the next spring. And it's kind of interesting. There's three different 
groups of tarpon that, that sort of cruise up the east and west coast. But once they leave Central America, they cross the Gulf, they come up, and the really big tarpon, the giant tarpon, will stay off water and they'll go north. The smaller tarpon will go in along the beaches down to Boca Grande, and another part of that school goes around the east coast. And uh, there's, I mean, it's like Fort Lauderdale. That's the one thing Fort Lauderdale has a ton of right now in Miami and Hollywood and all these inlets and stuff uh, is because they've got so many big tarpon. But it's, you know, it's, it's having access to these big tarpon is the problem. Hmm. But uh, Is that it, on the East Coast? Is that uh, due to private shoreline or? Yeah, um, it's, it's hard. The shorelines are so developed. But we really want to fish for these fish are in the passes. I mean, it's mm-hmm. fishing for a tarpon offshore. If if you're following the mullet run north or you're following the mullet run south, then you can act. The one time we used to fish for these tarpon off the beach, there were no building, there was no development, there was no condos. We'd actually go out there, put a trash can there, we'd throw a cash net, nut two or three dozen mullet, put them in the trash can, then take a jig master on a, on a on a conventional rod and pitch these mullet back out there, and we'd hook tarpon all day. Didn't necessarily catch them, but we'd hook tarpon all day. And, uh, <laughs> but it was fun. I mean, it was it was just it was, it was what we did in the summer. I mean, it was in the spring and fall. And now, believe it or not, the mullet runs are coming back. And uh, I've got people. I got friends that have, they fly drones over these schools. The mullet is are coming up and down the west, the east and west coast. And you just see these huge tarpon sharks in there blowing up on the mullet, blowing the mullet up on the beach. It's kind of an interesting thing. Well, is that, how is that going to change things? I mean, you said earlier that one of the problems is lack of bait, but uh, but you've mentioned a lot of other problems like lack of grass and so forth. So well, is the grass there a possibility? Is the, main, the grass issue is mainly a West Coast problem, okay, okay. because that's where all the estuaries are. The East Coast, and when you get up to the Banana and Indian River, you really don't have any estuaries. Everything right, is man-built right. and seawall and things like that, so there really is no grass. But the fish will move up and are down depending upon what time of the year it is and chase the mullet and then we'll feed on these mullet all the way down to they get around miami and down into the keys and then the mullet are usually gone i have no idea what happens to them everybody said they, they get eaten but i can't believe it that many mullet get eaten they've got to reproduce and lay eggs and it's the whole cycle of life has got to be turned around and go back in the spring so these mullet have to be growing relatively quick what do you uh what, where do you think the best tarpon fishing in florida is right now considering all the I, development everything well, I still else think off the, yeah i still think all the beaches on the west coast are good it's just it's just you've got to have a boat to get out there in order to do it right. i mean <laughs> if you like to shark fish there's tons and tons of sharks on the east coast on the west coast too but i think the tarpon on the east coast are more accessible because you have so many of them in the intercoastal and they've got all these big what do you call it? Oh, for lack of a better term, all the jetties and stuff where the water come in, uh, they're always full of tarpon. I mean, they're always yeah, there. Canals so you got to get them yeah. on the right time. And well, that's what you know. I was kind of talking about earlier is that in Florida there are so many different places to fish, from lakes to canals to estuaries to everywhere. beaches to to passes to uh, I mean rivers to. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's like everywhere you look, there's water, uh, one way, shape, or form. So, uh, once I know you guys get north catching... of Tampa, once yeah. you get north of Tampa, there's so many lakes, so many freshwater lakes, and so many estuaries, and so much water coming in, and so many rivers going out, and they're all full of fish. Uh, you know, 
the majority of the people that live in South Florida live in from Tampa, Orlando, South. Okay, that's whether right. You have to take into consideration Jacksonville too, but for the most part, it's like the whole panhandle. You know, you've got Pensacola and you've got Daytona and things like that. But in between there, especially uh, along the panhandle and the curve that goes down, there's tons and tons of estuaries and rivers, at, and there's tons and tons of. Uh, what am I calling it? Uh, spring creeks up there. There are these creeks come out of nowhere, and the water flows down and eventually dumps into the ocean. But there's so many different kinds of bass and different fish in these things. So it's really great fishing. It's great camping. It's just uh, anything you'd ever want. And right now, it's still relatively undeveloped. But how long it'll last? Who knows? Yeah. So it's it's pretty much from um, what's that main highway going across? Is that Interstate Four? 10. Yeah, Interstate 10. 10. Yeah. Well, I'm talking about through, through Orlando. Tampa. Yeah, that goes through, uh, yeah, from Interstate 4 from Tampa to Orlando. But Interstate 10 goes over to 95 going south. And uh, actually 95 and 75. But there's so many places to get off the beaten path and fish. And there's so many of these spring creeks that run through central Florida that are just absolutely beautiful. And actually, um, believe it or not, the rivers that cut the mouth of the Suwannee for the last, the first 25, 30, maybe even 40 miles still have sturgeon, believe it or not. And oh, wow. you can go wow. you can go up there in the summertime and you can go down in a canoe and these giant sturgeon, you know, six, seven, eight feet long, come out of the water and crash or jump. Uh, a lot of people, you can rent houseboats up there, and you can go up and catch swanee bass. You can catch largemouth bass and tons and tons of bluegills and other things, too. Um, it just, they're going, <laughs> it, it just depends how much of the state the Game and Fish Commission and the state government and the different groups and organizations are able to save. That's, yeah, I mean, yeah. if you can just save this stuff and, State of Florida really, honestly, does a fairly good job in buying as much of the land up as they can. Actually, the problem with the sugar industry is uh, when I was in Florida State, taking a commercial fishing license away from all the commercial fishermen. And so it, it was sort of an interesting thing. And I kept wondering, well, if you're going to take the fishing license for the commercial fishermen, what are you going to do with all this land that they lived on? Because what happens is you're taking their life, your ability to make a living away. And so they can't afford to live on the land or the homes that they were paying. It was just a horrible thing. But I think what's going to happen, that land that land was bought by developers. It wasn't bought by the state of Florida. And that's the downside to it because all that land, whether it's developed now or not, it will be developed eventually. And how close they're going to get to these rivers and how you know how much green space you're going to keep between them. And that's, that's, that's like the mouth of the Swanee River now. It's a huge city with multi-million dollar homes on it. And I can remember as a kid, the mouth of the, the Swanee River was absolutely nothing. When, mean, where, is a, the, where is the Swanee River? It dumps out uh, almost in the, at the, north, the northwest corner where Florida turns. And you've got tons and tons of little islands in there and rivers and estuaries. And you've got these little towns. But like Crystal River? Of, is is it north of Crystal South of Crystal River south of Swan. Okay. And Crystal River at one time was a fantastic place too. Um, oh, I see it now. I see it now on the map. I'm looking yeah. at the map here. Above Cedar Key. 
north of yeah. there. Cedar yeah. Keys. Yeah. Cedar Keys would be a great place to fish. Uh, a lot of these places are still fishable, and there's a lot of fish to be caught. I mean, I I talk about it as if they're all gone, but they're not really all gone. They're there. You just it just takes a little bit of time and energy. And but would you say the um, that northwest section of Florida is probably the better fishing, the less less populated area now uh, than yeah, I, I, from, yeah, yeah, from about I don't know three quarters of the way up, make the turn and go around and yeah. uh, almost to Apalachicola. Yeah. yeah, Apalachicola is small. Apalachicola has always been there, and there's some really good bridges up there, and there's some really good islands out there, but it's still relatively undeveloped. You know, right. People use them for, you know, winter homes and things like that, but it's still, right. they've yeah. been able to save most of the islands up there. And, uh, of course, last three, four, five years, they've been beat up by hurricanes pretty bad, but they make a good comeback. I mean, that's the problem with no. South Florida now. Sanibel just got wiped out two years ago and uh, yeah it just almost yeah. completely got destroyed so jim i've got some questions from our audience on fishing down in florida and uh see if you can answer these as, as best you can uh, don bishop in bozeman montana says could you discuss how one might fish shallow waters of south florida successfully independent of a guide including where what modes of travel watercraft so forth would you be fishing canals, peacock bass, or that kind of thing? This whole peacock bass thing is an inner city fish. <laughs> okay. I don't know how to explain it. At first, what really what really strange is that the Game and Fish Commission in the state of Florida said, "Okay, we're going to we're spending three billion dollars a year to get rid of water hyacinth and grasses and the canals, and all these canals are man-made." And so what they decided to do was go down to South America and bring back tilapia and peacock bass. Well, first they brought back tilapia and they dumped them all into the canals in Miami, Fort Lauderdale, and Palm Beach, thinking that these fish will eat all the vegetation and keep the hydrilla away. But what they didn't understand was tilapia, all sorts of tilapia, myon cichlids, myon cichlids, and all these fish that belong to that category, they spawn two and three times a year, and they lay thousands of eggs, but they're very, very, they stay on the eggs. So other fish can't get in there and eat the eggs. But they produce so many fish that then they, should, then they told everybody, well, the problem, the problem will be solved. All the wading birds in South Florida will eventually start to eat these. But then, you know, they never realized that all these canals in South Florida and Central Florida were man-made. And they didn't, there was no gradual you know, angle down. Shoreline, yeah. Yeah, yeah. it was straight down like three or four or five feet. Yeah, right. the waiting <laughs> bird in the world to eat these damn fish. So then they decided, uh, okay, we're going to bring in peacock bass, okay? And this is what what's really, I thought was really strange because Florida's always been known as the largest bass capital of the world. They started bringing in these peacock bass and dumping them in these canals, assuming these peacock bass were going to eat the tilapia. Where the tilapia were so ferocious and they didn't get off the beds, the peacock bass couldn't get in. So the peacock bass started eating all the bluegill and bass. And eventually the bluegill and bass were all gone. And now what you have is canal after canal after canal, lake after lake after lake, with peacock bass and various other uh, cichlids. And so you would think that the fishermen in the state of Florida would get mad. But the problem is the majority of fishermen in the state of Florida come from the northeast and midwest and they come down and they all of a sudden they're catching three four five pound p 
peacock bass, and they're just excited. They get all these cichlids and lion cichlids and it's all these exotic fish. And there's no more bass and bluegill left, and so, but these peacock bass kept growing and growing and growing, and they started putting them in different lakes, like at the airport down in, in, in Miami. It's called Airport Lakes, where you get a, where the airport's on one side, and you got you got a hotel, and but you got these lakes all out in front, and they're loaded with giant peacock bass. They're so popular, but they the racetrack in Miami. The middle section of the track is a big lake, and it's full of peacock bass. So people go pay twenty-five dollars a day when they're not racing to go in and catch peacock bass. It's, <laughs> it's, it's, okay. It's so in, in in answer to Don's question, one <laughs> thing you can fish for in Florida from the shore is peacock bass, right? Without any absolutely watercraft or anything else. Yeah, yeah. yeah but what the, about the trick what about is, fishing? Uh, the, yeah, go ahead. The trick is you can fish peacock bass just about anywhere. You just have to find a place to park. I had friends that would go down to the. I, I had friends that would go down to the airport lakes and rent a hotel room for two and three days in the hotel just so they could go down and fit, have a place to park and fish for peacock bass. Jeez. Oh, <laughs> okay. Well, here's another. Yeah, a dilemma. I got another question. I want to roll through these because we're running out of time. Walter down in Key Largo, Florida, says, "Are Oceanside, Florida Keys tarpon?" Difficult, or am I imagining them as super spooky? It's both <laughs> overpopulation, overpopulation, not of the fish, but the people and the boats and the jet skis and everything that goes into that. At one time, on both sides of the, the Florida Keys, I mean, from at one, let me put it this way: at one time, we would go down the Card Sound Road, we'd go over the bridge, and the only thing on Card Sound Road was a sort of a gravel road and a dirt road, and there were occasionally homes every once in a while. There's a fish on there with Steve and Lefty Cray. And we would go down there and we would just walk right on the right out on the grass, you know, pull the car off the road, we'd go wade and we would cast a bone fishing permit. I mean it was we didn't necessarily catch a lot of permit, but we did get quite a few bonefish for wading. And uh last time I was down there I guess it was like a year and a half ago, they built a new bridge and the whole estuary system south of Biscayne Bay had been turned into housing developments and you couldn't get in there. And if you could get in there, you couldn't find a place to park. So if you could find a place to park and go knock on somebody's door and they're kind enough to let you walk through the yard, go out and wait. But then again, it's also a grass issue down there because you've got so many jet skis and so many boats and you have so many guides boats running across the grass flats and just chewing up the grass. It just, just, it's a lot like of factors. Everybody's, a lot of factors. Yeah. It's just like everybody's in a race to destroy what we have left. Yeah. And yeah. It's like, okay. And the guys charge. Yeah. Okay. Go ahead. I was going to say, but the guides charge anywhere from six to nine hundred dollars a day now. And then you I heard twelve hundred. Yeah. <laughs> and then you got to pay number two fifty three hundred for a hotel room. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, Jerry in Lexington, Kentucky says, uh, for a trout fisher who has done very little saltwater fishing, are there Florida locations that are good spots for bone fish from shore or shallow wading? Is that possible anymore? Yeah, just three or four keys um, as you're going down to Key West. Uh, Big Pine Key is still, I don't want to say it's undeveloped because it is sort of developed, but at one time Big Pine Key had nothing on it but a little campground. And that's where all the, um, what you call it, the uh, key deer, the small key deer, you know, the ones mm-hmm. that used to only stand about 
24, 25 inches tall. That's where they were, that's essentially was the last bastion for them. And there's still some of them down there. The problem is you get so many invasive species, not only coming through Florida, but coming in from the Caribbean and coming up from Central America and, and Yucatan and places like that. It's not only plants. I mean, I mean, just not only fish, it's plants. Everything is just growing in there. So it, Florida Keys are still, they're not what the Bahamas are. I mean, the water in the Bahamas is still almost pristine, yeah. crystal clear. But yeah. the water in the Keys, because of all the water and pollution that come down the Gulf Stream on the east and west coast, is it's not only is it filling in the grass, but it's, like I said before, this is all, all the grass is being destroyed by the boats. And jet yeah. skis are the worst thing in the world, even though I, I kind of like them. But they're still yeah. one of the worst things in the world for the fishing. But there are places okay. down there, like uh, lower and upper Matacomba Key, you can still fish the ocean side without getting stuck in the muck, and there's a lot of fish down there at yeah, different tides. Yeah. On the west, so, uh, west I got a, Yeah, Pete, uh, I got another couple of questions I got to hit here. Pete uh, says, if uh, fly fisher were to live or stay an extended period of time on the west coast of Florida, from a fishing logistics perspective, where would be the best spot? Well, normally it would be Sanibel. I actually, the good thing about Sanibel is the grass is gone on the backside and on the front side, but it's still there's fish that migrated up and down the beaches. Like I spend six, seven, eight weeks a year on Sanibel chasing tarpon off the beach and in the backside on the Ding Darling National Wildlife Refuge and on Kay Acosta. But we also fish for snook off the beaches, and that usually starts in um, May and it goes to June, July, and August. And depending upon the, the temperatures, sometimes we we fish for uh, snook and tarpon on the beaches until September and October. It just, but there is still really good snook fishing and good tarpon okay. fishing off the beaches. Okay. Frank, really uh, a, go ahead, finish up. I got another question. It's really, a, it's really <laughs> affordable. I run these yeah. trips down there where I say seven nights, six days. And I only charge people nineteen hundred fifty dollars for the week. And, oh wow! Uh, wow. Yeah, I, t- oh. I take people yeah. out. And show them where to fish on the beaches and stuff. And we take them all to Sanibel and Captiva. And uh, we just fish for tarpon right off the beaches and snook right off the beaches. There's also right. a couple passes down there, like Blind Pass, is still really good. Frank in Loveland, Colorado asked, uh, Where in Florida would you suggest for winter fishing for bonefish and permit? What part of Florida? The Bahamas. <laughs> the Bahamas. <I'm> it, it's just the Bahamas is still functionally one of the best places on the planet to fish for bonefish and permit. Now okay. you can go down and pay a guide, like you said, for $1,200 a day in a hotel. And yet, if you really want to, you can go over and spend, say, five days, six days, or three, four days, whatever you want to, say, on Grand Bahama Island. Uh, you've got East End Lodge, and you've got Bears Lodge, Abacos. You've got dozens and dozens of lodges down there. And you'll be fishing with a guide and a boat, having room and board and great food and libations for about, a, I don't know, maybe 40, 50% of what it would cost you to go to the Keys. Uh, yeah, and better fishing. Yeah. Better fishing. Okay. Um, and actually, uh, Grand Bahama Island, if you fly into Fort Lauderdale, Grand Bahama Island, there's two lodges on Grand Bahama Island. It's only a 45 minute flight. Uh, Dino in Michigan, soon to move to Florida, he says. Um, how is it? How easy is it for a long-time northern states trout and salmon fishermen to adapt to fishing in Florida? 
Are there places where trout tackle would fit species there? Are there any places or situations that'd be similar to stream trout fishing? Yeah, a lot of the fresh, actually a lot of the freshwater rivers. I mean, if you if you don't mind paddling a canoe or you got a john boat, you can run up these rivers forever, and it's full of bass and bluegill and other species. So actually, something called a swanee bass, which is kind of a cool thing. But a lot of these things come out of springs up and around Tallahassee. There's like there's the Wasissa, which is a great great spring river. And then you've got the Chipola, which is another great, great river. The problem with these rivers are the water's so crystal clear that it just takes a while to figure out how to actually catch these fish. Mm-hmm. Okay. But it's still okay. great fishing there. I, I go over there, I don't know, probably half a dozen times a year. When I go back to watch football games, but I also go fishing when I go over there. Yeah. Okay, so I got one last question here from Tommy in Boulder, Colorado. I think it's a good one to end on because we can get your – opinion on what's next but let me read his question i've been fishing charlotte harbor around boca grande for 20 years and have sadly noticed a severe decline in the ecosystem in recent years which has obviously had an effect on fishing particularly in the flats where healthy grasses have turned into muck it seems as if the issues are getting some attention but i worry it's too little too late my question is twofold as citizens what is the priority action we should be working with the government on and two are there parts of Southwest Florida that are faring better than Charlotte Harbor for whatever reason? Signed, a wading flats angler looking for some healthy green turtle grass. <laughs> Sound familiar, oh, huh? That's a tough one. Um, actually, there's some estuaries down in Naples on the backside, actually north of Naples. But the problem is it's being developed so fast, but you can't get in there because they're, they're building seawalls and ripped out all this the mangroves, it's just hard to hard to find a place to get into. One of the coolest things in the world, if, if the backside of these islands from Fort Mar- I mean from uh, Naples north to Sanibel, there are lots and lots and lots of places to get into and out of. How they've held up because of the, the hurricane two years ago is Category 5. I mean, it just ripped everything apart. But it's what I hate about this is is once this happens, then the developers dig in and they start buying everything up, and then it's over. I mean, I have no idea why people have to live on the water because if they live on the water, then you got to have a seawall, then you got to rip out all the mangroves, then you don't have access to the grass flats. But there are places that you can explore down there, and if you have a canoe or a john boat, or you, you don't, you like fishing on a john boat, or it's there's some great places to fish, but you have to really be careful because that part of Florida has a lot of alligators, a lot of alligators, <laughs> really yeah. lots of alligators. Yeah, Even you said that Dardo seriously. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean it's like here, and everybody laughs, but uh, these four guys fished on the Mississippi, uh, Mississippi Alabama border, just caught a 14 foot, 814 pound alligator. Oh my gosh! Oh my gosh! Yes, think about it. That eats Volkswagens for breakfast, I bet, huh? Yes. Yeah. It scares um, me to death because my wife and all her friends they they kayak out here in the Delta, and I'm going, "Are you kidding me?" <laughs> I mean, it's. <laughs> but yes, yeah, they do. Yeah. It drives me absolutely nuts. I'm, I'm, I'm in total shock where they're gone. I just keep hoping that they show up and come home. And so the I problem is. Go ahead. 
Go ahead. I showed my wife that picture, that alligator, and I'm not so sure if she's going back anytime soon. Going to go back, yeah. So in answer to Tommy's question, uh, if there's development going on, there's really no going back, right? I mean, with the seawall. No, it's not because the only thing we can do really do is try to preserve the natural estuaries and stuff as they are. And um, I, I think that's where he's going is how do you do that? It's a good question. Um, I, I <laughs> I, I, I'm not a pessimistic person. I'm really not. Uh, I try to look at the, the good side to all of us. And it's ironic. If you have the time, the money, and ability to travel up and down the beaches and the coast, you know, there's still places. That's like up in Sarasota. There's there's lots of places that you can get out and wait on the backside of Siesta Beach, or you can go up in Longwood Key and wait some of the places up there. There's lots of passes that you can actually get out and wait in. And... Um, one of the coolest things in the world, I don't know if you like shrimping, but there's like a uh, Longboat Key Pass on the on the north side. You can get out there and wade the grass flats at night with a lantern and a dip net and dip just tons and tons of shrimp, which is kind of cool. Huh. Uh, yeah. It's, then you can use the shrimp for bait, live shrimp for bait, and then you can eat what's left. <laughs> and <laughs> but, eat what's uh, left. <laughs> yeah. But in, yeah. it's, it's, there are places, there, there's, like in Sarasota, there's a place called Hearts Landing, and it's, it goes over to Longboat Key. But on the back side of it, there's a botanical garden going around the corner. And it stretches for like, I don't know, four, five, six hundred yards, and it's all grass flats. And you can park at the botanical garden and just walk out there and fly fish. We, and we used to, matter of fact, we used to, you're talking about EP flies, we used to use EP mollifies black and with red eyes. Oh, yeah. We'd go out there at night on an incoming tide or an outgoing tide, and we'd, we'd get snook all night long on these EPs. So it's, it's a great fly. The only thing I wish is they would attach the eyes a little bit better than they do. But more often <laughs> than not, we just rip the eyes off and put super glue on ourselves. But, uh, uh- I'll, I'll tell Enrico if, about that. <laughs> if, if, if there are places, if you're going down to Boca Grande and on the right-hand side, as you're going down before you get to Boca Grande Bridge, there's still places that you can get out and wade there. And then on the other side, when uh, I wouldn't suggest that, but on the north side of, of the bridge, going up maybe a half mile, three-quarters of a mile in the, uh, towards Port Charlotte, there are places that you can get out and wait. Actually, if you at the Ringling Art Museum in Sarasota, it's got about maybe three quarters of a mile on the back side of it. It's all owned by the uh, art gallery. I mean, owned by King, uh, not King Donner, but the uh, Ringling Museum. But the Ringling Museum is now owned by Florida State University, so they manage to take care of it. But I've, I've gone out there plenty of times and sit out there and took a fly rod and got six, seven, eight trout in the morning. And it's, it's, you just, I think in some ways you have to spend enough time down there to dig out these little kernels, yeah. but there are yeah. places down there that are still good. I mean, it's yeah. just, just, it just takes work. But like it takes I said, a lot, lot more work than though. it did. Yeah. 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 You just, I mean, it's like Pompano. I mean, when I was a kid, Pompano were like a dime a dozen for the bridges. I mean, we'd just load up five gallon buckets full of these things. But now in order to catch Pompano, you've got to be in the right place at the right time. The biggest problem for fishermen down there is, but the state has done everything it could to keep fishermen off the bridges. Why? I have no idea. I, I think they, like when you're going out to Boca Grande, the last thing they want to see is a bunch of kids up on the bridge fishing. Why? I have no idea. 
the backside of Sanibel. Actually, before before the storm came out, on the backside of Sanibel, you could pull over and park on the bridge and walk all the way down to the lighthouse or park on the other side and walk maybe a mile and a half, two miles north. And it was always grass flats where there were everything out there. There was redfish, there was trout, uh, occasional tarpon. Uh, it was really good. I haven't, I'm going down this summer. It'll be the first time I've been down there for two years. But, you know, it's, it's just there. You just have to work at it. After I mean, it's, it. yeah, and there's tons and tons okay. of guides down there. The guides on Santa Bell are quite as expensive as the guides in the Keys. Right, but, right, uh, right. Yeah. Yeah. But it yeah. Is, it's kind of a cool thing. Okay. Well, unfortunately, we got to wrap things up here, uh, Jim. And um, but stick with me until we give away your book and so forth. Uh, we'll be sure. doing that in the next few minutes. We're, we're also be giving away a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International and a one-year membership to Trout Unlimited and a copy of your book, South Florida's Fishing Paradise, courtesy of Stackpole Books. So uh, stick with me. We'll be right back, and we'll do just that. Reeling and Healing Midwest is a nonprofit organization that champions fly fishing retreats for women surviving and battling all types of cancer. Their mission is to introduce women to the healing powers of the sport of fly fishing and to provide a one-of-a-kind experience on and off the water. This is accomplished through the elements of fly fishing, positive camaraderie, peer coaching, a nurture and support network, which in turn renews the spirit and hope of each participant. Reeling and Healing Midwest is in need of trout flies, waders, leaders, fishing equipment, and other items. To view their current wish list and to learn how you can support their retreats, visit fishon.org. That's fishon.org or call them at 616-855-4017. That's 616-855-4017. Just a quick reminder to everyone before you leave the website tonight, please take a minute and give us your feedback about the show. You can find a link on our homepage in the section under tonight's show. It says, what did you think of the show? Just click on that link and leave your comments. We'd really appreciate it. Well, now it's time to give away our prizes. And the winners of our drawings are randomly selected from the show's registration database. If you didn't register for tonight's show, it's too late now, but make sure you do so for our next show so you don't miss out on winning some of these great prizes. If you are one of the lucky winners, we'll contact you after the show to collect your information so that we can deliver your prize to you. Uh, so first, we'll be giving away a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International. To learn more about FFI, go to flyfishersinternational.org. Flyfishersinternational.org is a great organization to support. So if you don't win, go join anyway and be part of FFI. And let's see. Let me press the magic button on my end here. And it looks like David Yagerman in New York. David Yagerman in New York. Just got yourself a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International, so congratulations. And now we'll give away a one-year membership to Trout Unlimited. To learn more about Trout Unlimited, go to tu.org, tu.org. And it, too, is a great organization to support and be part of. Our winner for that is Scott Lorenz, Scott Lorenz in Colorado. So, Scott, congratulations on that. Okay, so now... With that done, we're going to give away a copy of Jim's latest book, South Florida's Fishing Paradise, courtesy of Stackpole Books. And be, uh, I'm going to let you fill in some gap here in a minute, um, Jim. Hold on just a second here. Now, if you want to win Jim's book, you need to give me the correct answer and be the first one to do that by putting in the answer in the on their homepage there in the same box that you could ask questions at during the show. So put in your answer there, your name, your location, email address, and the first person to get the correct answer will win. 
Uh, this is a tough show to come up with a question for, but um, I'm going to ask, what is the general area that Jim talked about where it's more laid back, less people up there and still great fishing? What part of Florida did he talk about uh, that fits that description? So... Um, Let's see. Now, I have to wait until people put in their answers here. But, Jim, but I, I missed out on asking you earlier what's going on in your fly fishing words. So tell us briefly what you're up to and uh, how people can get a hold of you, like, to do some of these trips you do and so forth. Sure. You can I actually go to sweetwatersadventure.com. Uh, it's S-W-E-E-T-W-A-T-E-R-S-A-D-V-E-N-T-U-R-E.com. And... Uh, I represent roughly about 188 lodges in 79 countries. And uh, I just got back from uh, the Gas Bay and the uh, Restigouche and the Matapedia fly fishing for Atlantic salmon, getting ready to head out west, probably in the spring fish Missouri River. But uh, we do a lot of, sometimes we do a lot of uh, steelhead fishing in the wintertime in southern Oregon and the Olympic Peninsula. And we do a lot of steelhead fishing up in uh, British Columbia. We fished Maurice, the, the uh, Buckley, and rivers like that, and we fish a lot of the tributaries. Uh, we usually go two or three times a year. Our best time up there is late fall. We like to fish late October, early November. But we do a lot of fishing in Central America. We do a lot of fishing in Patagonia, Argentina, Chile. We do a lot of fishing in the Bahamas, obviously, because one is so close and it's less expensive, like I said, than going to the Keys. But uh, we do it up until this breakout between Russia and Ukraine. We used to go to Russia quite a bit. But we go to New Zealand uh, on the South Island at least once or twice a year. There's two new lodges down here. And uh, essentially, wherever you want to go, we can go. Uh, okay. Or we can send you and your family or whatever the situation is. But it's uh, it's a great way to travel. I mean, these trips are really safe. And we don't have any problem with the flights and information like that. So it's, it works out really well. Some of these trips we actually drive up. I just drove up to the Gas Bay. I know it sounds kind of stupid, but it was, it was a 7,000 mile trip. But we all, we all piled in a suburban and went up. And, uh, you know, most of the time we fly in just about any place we go. But sometimes we drive up so we can have transportation and we can go wherever we want. So. Mm-hmm. Well, terrific. It's, Again, why don't you give your, um, your website address again, and then we'll uh, get our winner taken care of here. Yep, it's uh, sweetwatersadventure.com. Okay, sweetwatersadventure.com. Okay, great. Thanks, Jim. Yep. So, Jim, I got uh, the first answer that I got here that I was looking for is uh, the answer was northwest Florida, north of Tampa, and south of Pensacola. Uh, is that <laughs> accurate enough? Absolutely. Okay, and that's Tommy Lorden in Boulder. Hey, Boulder, um, hello, Boulderite. Um, yeah, I spent half my time in Boulder and half my time up in Bailey. But, uh, Tommy, uh, congratulations. Thanks for paying attention. And uh, what you need to do, Tommy, is in that same form, send me your address. Uh, I got your email. I got your name. I just need your shipping address so that Stackpole can send you out a copy of Jim's book. So, uh, again, and folks, uh, I'm sure you can get uh, Jim's book on um, Amazon and so forth. So be sure to check it out. And lots of great stories, as you found out tonight. It's uh, Florida's wonderful place. 
and a great place to generate great stories. So uh, check out his book, Southwest Florida Paradise. So, all right, that's it. Uh, Hey, Jim, thank you so much for being with us tonight and sharing your knowledge and your experiences from uh, a bygone era, (laughs) so to speak. But there's still hope. (laughs) We can still have hope. Probably if you got the time and energy, there's still places to explore. There's still great there. fishing. Yeah, yeah. Florida's a great place. Um, so thanks a lot for being with us tonight. Thank you. Appreciate it. Sure. Hopefully, all of you have found our podcast archive on our website. If you haven't, just look for the link on the top line menu. Uh, in the archive, you'll find all of our past shows, over 385 shows now, uh, which you can search by keyword phrase like trout, Florida, tarpon, uh Nook, whatever you'd like, you're going to find a lot of uh, shows we've done and a lot of great education out there. Our next broadcast will be on November 15th, 7 p.m. Mountain, 9 p.m. Eastern Time. And that show, I'm going to interview Bill Horn. And our topic for the show will be Bristol Bay Sockeye Salmon and Rainbow Trout. Bill has, has had a 50-year connection with Alaska. And each year, 60 million or more wild salmon run up the rivers of Bristol Bay. And, of course, rainbow trout are right there with them. Bill will share his knowledge of the natural history, culture, and management of this fishery, along with fishing strategies, fly choices, and trip planning. So listen in to learn more about this outstanding and one-of-a-kind fishery. And to do this, you can uh, just add this upcoming show by clicking on the Add to Calendar buttons right below Bill's picture on our homepage, and uh, that'll put it on your calendar, and you'll be all set. We'd like to thank Fly Fishers International, Trout Unlimited, Stackpole Books, Lease Ferry Anglers, Ugly Bug Fly Shop, and Enrico Puglisi Flies for sponsoring our show tonight. Don't forget to visit our website at askaboutflyfishing.com and make sure you signed up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. Thanks for listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We hope you enjoyed the show. Good night, everyone, and good fishing.